to reach our mission-capable goals, and then we're just going to drop back down to uh, whatever, you know, below, below our needs. The reliability control boards will keep us there. But to your point, the one thing that's going to get us there, the one tool that we are currently rolling out, and, and we have been working this probably harder than anything, is what's called a failure reporting and corrective action system. So that is a tool that is going to ingest well more detail than what I talked about with the degrader tracking system. This will be all the data behind a degrader. It'll be repair data, the stuff that Jason talked about with Claire. And what it'll do is actually provide us with the ability to optimize our maintenance, to predict failures before they occur, give us the confidence that we know the reliability, the time on wing for a particular component is X. And before we get to X and that aircraft is inducted for some type of maintenance, we will have the confidence uh, because of the system to remove that component and replace it before it fails. I'm sure one of the challenges y'all have is, you know, most or all of the type model series you're, you're working on here were designed in an analog world. And I'm just curious how much thinking you've done about some kind of future state where you're actually working with airframes that were produced via digital engineering and you've just got so much more native data available to work with for, for tools like this. Yeah, Jason, I'll let you answer that. Yeah, certainly. The, um, there's a lot of digital uh, efforts and transitions and um, transformations that are going on across the uh, across NOC AD. So specifically the, um, right, so we have systems engineering transformation efforts that are going on to really move towards a model-based systems engineering environment. We have some model-based product support um, initiatives and efforts that are going on. Um, we have, we've done uh, partnerships with companies like uh, DSI International and, uh, and IBM and, and others that have been fantastic partners to help us really bridge that gap to the digital side. We actually had a conversation uh, earlier on this week of, leveraging some of the degrader tracking system information with some future development work they're actually doing um, and bridging some of those uh, degrader capabilities to identify and have that feedback loop back into early design um, right now. So those efforts are ongoing and it's actually very, very exciting to not just see it, but there's a clear path forward to do it. There's a great teams uh, across the board that are really working the effort hard. And to produce results on some of these these older systems, how much do you have to digitize the physical items that you're working on and thinking about? Yeah, that it it, it is a challenge. We have, you know, a lot of our historic data is actually uh, paper in a paper form. Um, in some cases, maybe sitting in a warehouse uh, prior to you know more modern technologies like we have today, and that is very valuable data and information that we require. So one of the uh, things that we have done and is, is happening now is we have the uh, Naval Air Warfare Center Training Systems Division down in Orlando. They have an artificial intelligence lab that did a lot of work um, in support of the physiological effects. And one of those things was uh, they, they were able to, and then now they've got a custom algorithm that they've designed for our purposes and that is to take the, that handwritten information, that, that analog information, and turn it into usable data. And in my mind, when I first got involved with this, I thought, you know, I just oversimplified what that takes. And so to be able to um, create something that 
isn't available anywhere else that that can take handwritten information and successfully turn that into data that we are now you know that we now have available for when we have this common failure reporting and corrective action system in place and for the systems that we currently have to do that analysis um, is is extremely beneficial and, we, and we're benefiting from that from that right now Robert you mentioned toward the that, oh sorry go ahead I was going to say that, that it applies to any stage at which data may be any form that data might be so I got to probably the most rudimentary where it's handwritten but there are other siloed data sources that we are now relying on that we are integrating into uh, you know <clears throat> into our system so that we can have that data in a in a you know a state in which we could use it yeah, that, that's all very interesting. It wasn't where my brain was when I asked the last question, although it's a totally reasonable answer. I was thinking more of, you know, do you need digital representations of the physical characteristics of a wing or a hydraulic pump, you know, to, to, to apply oh. these techniques well? Yeah, so there's so there's a couple different aspects from, if I look at it from a modeling standpoint, um, and if I look at, say, MBSC or MBPS or things like that, if I'm talking models, there are uh, right there's physical models there's data models um there's uh you know system engineering type models there's, there's all these type of models out there i think what uh jared for your question it's really looking at maybe a physics-based model representation of understanding the behavior of what's being modeled itself so i have inputs i have inputs outputs i have constraints i have intrinsic and inherent behavior of a given system uh and that's actually really important there's uh, i can't just look at data in something happens and then i get data out i have to understand the, the behaviors the constraints the um the history the timing of of all that um the fatigue on a wing or something like that when it's first off the line is going to be different than 10 years 20 years down the road so if i can have a digital representation of that and i have this um there's a uh, there's a company that has a product called nline n-l-i-g-n uh company's called engine that has this historical representation that we can digitize a lot of our records and we can kind of, we can keep a history of, you know, repairs and, and other things that have been done. So we're already digitizing a lot of that, that work. Um, and that is going to feed physics-based models, even though it's a sort of a documentation and overlay right now of, of what work has been done. Does that answer your question? Does that help? It, it does. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. Um, switching gears just a little bit, Robert, you mentioned toward the beginning of the conversation that at least the, the, conceptually the idea of reliability control boards came from the commercial airline industry how, how much of everything that we've been talking about did you guys actually steal from the commercial world um how much is applicable to commercial and how much of this is really militarily unique that's a great question the so the the concept the the framework in the process is really what we we adapted because we are so unique if you think of an airline they typically have a, you know, where we have multiple type model series, they, they typically will have one. You know, Southwest is a great example where they, they fly the Boeing 737. Um, they don't have a lot of the uh, constraints that we might have to, you know, with, with our uh, contractual relationships that we have versus the way that they would procure something. So um, basically, we adopted the idea in, in the process which really is fairly simple, and that is that you you have to all be on the same page when it comes to what's hurting your head the most. We we can't have one part of the 
enterprise working, you know, A through F and the rest working X, Y, and Z. We all now agree that the 1 through 20 are our top head herders. So we're all focused on that, that North Star. That was one concept that they brought to us. I know it makes sense, but uh, we are now following that. And then you don't take your eye off the football. The systems that we have in place and the process and the board meetings make sure and the frequency of those meetings, which was important and they emphasized, is that we don't stop thinking about something even after we believe we've taken care of it. So even when a degrader moves off list, it's still in our system. And if we ever see something, an old degrader or a degrader that hasn't been on the list that is suddenly moving quickly in the wrong direction, we, we can address it earlier. So that, that process is, um, had to be, I'd say, I won't maybe heavily use a little too much, but we, we did have to tailor it significantly to meet our, the, you know, the diversity of our, of our systems, the diversity of the data sources we have, et cetera. And when it comes to that concept you mentioned of, of making sure everybody in the enterprise is having the same conversation, what makes up that enterprise in the case of naval aviation? How, you know, what, which piece, piece parts did you have to get in the same room to make this work? So uh, that, that's a great question. We have the, so at the executive level, we've got the commander of naval air systems. You know, we've got Admiral Peters. We've got the commander of naval air forces, so the, the you know, basically the folks that we're, we're making sure we are helping them have the, num- the readiness that they require. We've got our supply folks at uh, NAFSUP. We have DLA involved. We've got the aircraft type commanders. We have uh, the Marine Corps headquarters. We have um, uh, requirement sponsors at OPNAV anybody who was part of the process, we have the OEMs involved, all coming together on the same page of what our priorities are. And then decisions based in data of what we're going to do about those problems. And agreeing to not only get after the things that are most important that we need to correct now, but laying a foundation that will support this process after we've all moved on to different jobs. So I think really what what I'm seeing that really is going to be impactful in the future is the fact that we are thinking both about the now and the tomorrow and putting those laying that framework and things into place. Robert Smith is the head of the Reliability Control Board Data Analytics Team at the Naval Air Warfare Center Aircraft Division, also talking with Jason Thomas, the team's principal analyst. We'll wrap up our conversation on using data to build naval aviation readiness after another quick break. This is On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbid. Thanks for listening to Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. A few more minutes with Robert Smith, the head of the Reliability Control Board Data Analytics Team at the Naval Air Warfare Center Aircraft Division, and Jason Thomas, the team's principal analyst. Well, we've still got a few minutes left. I wanted to ask, talk a little bit about the future. We've already talked about predictive maintenance being kind of the, the holy grail end state here. But but what else do you foresee as you know, challenges and opportunities in the near term, medium term for this project? 
So overall, we've got 33 program offices right now, 20-some type model series. So getting these tools, I'll get back to the common failure reporting and corrective action system. When I say common, we're probably able to be 80% common. And that's, that's a stretch in some cases for us because the uniqueness again. So part of the challenge is getting these, these tools that may have been developed uh, for a single platform to work across multiple platforms and then being able to give those organizations, those program offices, the, you know, creating that unique part of what they need into the tool. And, and then I say tool, I mean tool. So we have to think about that for each of these things. We did it with the automated grader tracking system. It is deployed across, across the alt program offices, but we built that in-house. So we had complete control over that. When it comes to the failure reporting and corrective action system, we, are, we went with a commercial off-the-shelf solution that we are tailoring that 20% for. And, and then doing that in a manner that it's not happening five years from now. Any, anything longer than two years is too long. And so we are balancing that speed of getting these products out with making them effective for the, you know, how diverse we are in many cases. So that, that is a challenge. Um, it is not unsurmountable, but it certainly is a, a, a consideration that we have to think about every day and every time we, we come up with one of these, you know, we adopt one of these solutions. And I know uh, Jason can probably speak to challenges, some specific challenges to uh, the tools that he's that he's rolling out. Sure, Jason. Yeah, there, uh, thanks, Robert. There's, so generally speaking, I think we talked about the accuracy of the data. Um, that's a, so from a data standpoint, that's whether it's maintenance records, um, flight performance information, um, repair information, there's, there's an enormous amount of data that we're collecting, we're bringing in, aggregating, massaging and, and trying to figure out what's what and, and aligning everything together. Um, there's aspects of, hey, we just need more of it. Um, th- but I think more importantly, there's ways of doing it, um, sifting through it and organizing it in a smarter, faster way. Um, there's an expression years ago that I heard that were uh, data rich, but information poor. And that was from a 2008 uh, commentary. And it was actually in the realm of predictive maintenance. Um, we said, absolutely, we have so much data that you can you know, it's just so much data that how do we actually analyze it? So we're looking at ways of trying to prioritize that work and saying, okay, what am I trying to do? What's my use case? How do I, no kidding, how do I impact the flight line? What is hurting the maintainers, the sailors, the operators, the Marines, everybody? What's hurting their head right now? And how do I make their lives that much, that much better? And then how do we scale that? Not how do we scale and go big, but how do we address small things um, quickly that get real benefit that you can kind of get that that flywheel, that that snowball, so to speak, going. Uh, I know for my deployments, my longest day was 28 hours, um, and I I think about that often. As far as you know, the maintainers and, and operators are not there to give us um, curated, perfectly documented information and data. We're there to support them with um, you know weapon systems that that function, that work, to include material, non-material, you know, training devices, whatever that looks like. Um, we're supporting them. They don't support us in regards to that. It is a partnership, um, but it's very clear on the, you know, who's, who's sort of driving the bus uh, from that standpoint. Uh, I think just other challenges, just really linking and having a systems view on how do we connect a lot of disparate things together? I'm not just talking about data, but I'm talking about disciplines and domains. 
um, if we've operated in a past of I provide you this information. Well, is that all I should be providing you or is it a lot more? Do I understand the that, that one piece of information could actually help um, folks in a different domain? Um, do I do I really understand all the ways that that's going to be used? That's important. That's critical. And I think just on some of the IT and tools um, as well, trying to really get get our handle on that. Um, we would have companies come in, really smart folks that, again, great partners, been incredibly helpful. Um, but we do spend about enough time getting them up to speed on our challenges. For example, data quality. You know, hey, I have this AI algorithm. I have this machine learning something. I have this tool. Um, it can solve your problems. Um, and then they come in and they realize how how messy our data is. That usually slows us down. Uh, and again, it's not because they're not smart. It's not because we don't have the right folks in the room. It's a misunderstanding of what's, what the real challenges are. Um, there's, you know, we want to do more proactive maintenance, proactive uh, decision-making and things like that. We can do that now. We have ways of doing that. It's just, it's really getting a good data set, a, a underlying truth data set that I know I can make decisions based on this. Um, that's where some of our challenges are, and that's where we're trying to go. Uh, and just one example uh, in the future, one of the capabilities that we're developing. Um, so Robert mentioned the, uh, the the greater tracking system. So within that, there's a series of projects that a, uh, a DAC or a program office may have against a particular degrader. The question always comes up is, what projects do I do? Where do I fund? Um, where do I spend my energy and effort? Um, so we've partnered with uh, IBM to, to help us optimize that decision logic to say, hey, if you're going to do your projects, do project 1, 6, and 18. Don't do 1, 2, and 3. You know, and those may be engineering change proposals. Those may be, um, you know, buying more parts, more spares. Um, but we have to get, we have to really look at it from a systems view and not just a, uh, I have to buy more parts. I'm going to buy my way out of it. We, we can't do that. We're too smart and we can't keep doing that. That's Jason Thomas, the Principal Analyst for the Reliability Control Board Data Analytics Team at the Naval Air Warfare Center Aircraft Division. Robert Smith, the team leader, also joined us to talk about how data analytics are helping to boost naval aviation readiness. Another short break, and when we come back, we'll pivot to another topic, a quick look at the Pentagon's top management challenges in the upcoming year. This is On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbian. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. The Defense Department faces some basic challenges as the military services gear up for what they say is a return to great power competition, everything from building lethality advantages to financial management. They're all spelled out in the latest list of management challenges from the Defense Department's Office of Inspector General. The 2021 list is just out. Leo Fitzharris is the Assistant IG for Strategic Planning and Performance. He spoke with Federal News Network's Tom Temin. The DOD is aware of uh, all of the challenges. In fact, several of them, uh, over half, are what I would call legacy challenges where they've been in prior year versions. This year, we did introduce three new ones dealing with technology, non-traditional threats, and information as a strategic asset. But those ones that are enduring deal with ethics, financial management, space missile nukes, and great power competition and combating terrorism, and then most importantly, the health and welfare of our service members. 
Sure. And I want to get to the uh, the top of the list, which is maintaining the advantage, balancing great power competition with the ongoing need to battle terrorism worldwide. And those take different strategies, in some cases, different equipment, different training and so forth. And this has been on the list, I guess, for a little while now. But it mentions the eroded and atrophied capabilities of the armed services. Just briefly, what's going on this year with that particular challenge? So I think it's important to understand that near-peer great power competition does take a completely different set of strategies to man, train, and equip to address those threats as opposed to a counterterrorism, which we have been engaged in for the last 20 years. That can include not only basic individual skills, but also uh, equipment, as you mentioned, and different strategies and plans. Could it be also that the so-called great powers that the Defense Department is worried about, I guess primarily Russia and China, would know what capabilities have been honed in the past 20 years of these terrorism-related wars, and therefore their own tactics would be devised to not present themselves in the same way, knowing what the American forces have gotten good at? I think that may be part of it. You know, great power competition... They have a completely different set of resources. When you're combating terrorism, small unit, they have less resources. And clearly, China and Russia, in terms of technology, are far superior than those other, what we call in the report, rogue nations. I want to move on to the nuclear triad challenge. Again, this is something that you look at periodically. I know GAO looks at it periodically. The military itself looks at it periodically. I guess my question is, they need to sustain the still elements of the triad, but it seems like a lot of that is out of control of the military in the sense that the resources for it vary a lot depending on Congress and the administrations, and they have different views of what should be invested in the military in the uh, nuclear triad. So what are the major challenges on that front? In terms of the nuclear triad, there are a few challenges as with anything, the Department of Defense has a an appropriation or an authorization as well. So you have a budget ceiling, right? And so as you work through not only maintaining your capabilities, current capabilities, but you're also trying to modernize, both of those take resources, both in people as well as in funding. The existing triad, you know, subs, bombers, ballistic missiles, to include the command and control, are all well past their initial planned service life. For example, like the B-52, which I think first entered service in 1961. And then as you're transitioning to these new capabilities, the Columbia class or the long-range bomber, both of these things are brand new platforms. And with acquisition of new platforms come challenges in terms of the acquisition process itself, cost schedule and performance, to deliver those new capabilities. Sure. We're speaking with Leo Fitzharris. He's the Defense Department's Assistant Inspector General for Strategic Planning and Performance. And earlier you mentioned that there were three new challenges added to the annual list this year. Just to remind us what those were. So the new topics this year uh, that were added deal with emerging technologies. One we just started talking about building and sustaining our technological dominance. The other one is deals with non-traditional threats. Traditionally, the Department of Defense talks about kinetic, non-kinetic military issues. However, this strengthening resiliency to non-traditional threats is focused on 
pandemics, extreme weather events, as well as the impact of those. And one of the focus areas in that particular challenge deals with the Arctic. And the last one is transforming data into a strategic asset, which is harnessing all of the data that we have and transforming that into operational information that senior leaders can use to make timely and informed decisions. And in many ways, those three have interrelated elements because technological dominance may depend on the use of data to some extent. And, you know, non-traditional threats equally can be measured using data. And so do you see a theme? I, I see a theme in all three of those that kind of connects them. I would agree. All of the management challenges, you know, there is a current and you know, an undercurrent or a narrative thread that runs through the challenges document itself. And it should all tie back to why are these particular topics that we've identified, these 10 topics, a significant performance and management challenge to the department completing its mission. And let's talk about another element that has a mission that's old, but a new structure to deal with it. And that is space and the space domain. Now we have a space force. And uh, you comment in the report on what the Space Force needs to be effective. It's still pretty new, and I think they just barely got their uniform colors and shapes figured out. But now that there's starting to be funding and dedicated personnel to the Space Force, what needs to happen next? What's the challenge there? So as we write in the document, the challenge to Space Force, whenever you're creating a, a new component, putting in leadership you know, which was authorized under the 2020 National Defense Authorization, provided a certain manning level. But there's also a lot of intangibles that go in there in terms of governance functions, how do you do acquisitions, uh, how do you integrate these different acquisition pipelines that are already in existence in the military departments or in the case of the Space Development Agency, is under the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering. And so there's a lot of coordination, integration, definition of roles and responsibilities that has to occur on top of actually manning and then beginning to move forward with the Space Force. In many ways, the Space Force reflects issues that the federal government writ large, even outside of DOD, has had since the inception. And that is when you create whole new departments or whole new divisions, whole new bureaus, it takes a long time for those to get sorted out vis-a-vis -vis the existing structures. I think you're correct. In all of these cases, uh, you have a lot of talented individuals who are trying to do their best and working towards a one common goal, but there are a lot of things that are perhaps outside of their control as it relates to resourcing, or there have to be partners in the creation of these new entities. And I want to talk about something you also touched on briefly a few moments ago, and that is aging platforms and the long development times and costs of new platforms. This came to mind recently. I happened to have a trip aboard the USS Gerald Ford, the latest supercarrier. It's almost ready to be deployed. I think the keel was first laid on that boat more than a decade ago, and it takes four or five years of acceptance and testing before it's actually battle-ready can be deployed. And what does the report say about that whole topic of how long it takes from the conception of a new platform to its deployment and the costs associated there, too? So this year, we uh, approached acquisition a little differently. 
we combined it with the supply chain and defense industrial base, and mostly in talking in terms of data rights, understanding what we're paying for, making sure that we have a good requirements-driven process. We didn't highlight any specific platform in terms of cost schedule performance in the document. So it sounds like the report this year got you out of the specific platform, this fighter, that ship, that airplane, into a higher level discussion of the whole topic. That's correct. Across the whole management challenges document, the DODOIG made a very conscious effort to really focus on the strategic challenge as it relates to all the topics uh, that are listed. Chances are the Pentagon knows what issues it has with respect to how long it takes to develop this or that platform anyhow. That's correct. You know, our, our job in performing independent oversight of DOD programs and operations is to provide that objective lens, look at trending, and, and allow the department and their leadership to implement the changes based on our actionable recommendations. And then there's the topic of cyberspace, a big one that's dominated DOD now for a long time. And uh, what does the report say about the cyberspace question? That is to say, the operation of DOD in cyberspace offensively, as well as defensively to protect DOD's own networks and data. So the cyber challenge this year talks a lot about those particular topics, both offensive and defensive, but more so about securing the DODEN how do we do that? How do we implement best practices as it relates to cyber hygiene, credentialing, accounts, security roles? And we've issued, the OIG has issued several reports on that and a follow-up audit in particular. But we also talk about U.S. Cybercom's unified platform and use that as an example, I guess, to your prior question as it relates to when you're developing these new technologies and trying to create an enterprise asset, sometimes there are delays, sometimes there are increases in cost as you're implementing that. And the unified platform is really vital to, or is the department's approach to centralizing multi-domain operations, and by that I mean space, air, land, ground, sea, uh, and cyber, and synchronizing and integrating actions, both offensive and defensive, uh, in that space. I guess in looking at that particular one, you have a lot of common ground with the Government Accountability Office, which has, I think, your report cites some of the GAO reports on that very topic. We do. We do use uh, GAO's work. Uh, as I mentioned, we talk about sort of the cost of implementing the unified platform and they have written an, an issue to report on that. We're speaking with Leo Fitzharris. He's the Defense Department's Assistant Inspector General for Strategic Planning and Performance. And let's talk about the troops. What are the top issues for the health and well-being of troops? Because basically, you could say that's the fundamental issue. You take care of that and everything else kind of fixes itself. Right. This year's health and safety is a combination of both military health care as well as some of the issues that we used last year on the health and wellness. Obviously, the impact of the pandemic and taking care of our people is included, and the military health care reform, specifically as it relates to the defense health activity, the control of medical treatment facilities, which is transitioning from the military departments to the defense health activity, as well as the effectiveness 
of the MHS Genesis, which is the system that they're using for electronic health records to make sure that everything is deconflicted and actually properly documented. Yeah, in some ways, the MHS Genesis project brings together a lot of the challenges in terms of cost and schedule and making sure the requirements stay under control, and it does ultimately affect the health and well-being of troops. In some ways, that's one of the central challenges they've got, is to getting that thing really deployed in the right way in some reasonable amount of speed, I would say. Correct. And obviously, the DHA's data is something that we look at quite frequently from our data analytics perspective as it relates to improper charges, overcharging, healthcare fraud, and so forth. Uh, other topics in that health and safety arena, obviously, are things that we have focused on for some time, deal with substance abuse and suicide prevention. One that we've added and of particular focus this year is our environmental hazards, dealing with military housing, as well as PFAS, or those forever chemicals, and open burn pits. Got it. Yes, and DOD has been dealing with those for some years now, and they've had different programs, different even legislation with respect to the housing. It sounds like you're saying, don't let go of this one because it's not solved and it's something that's almost perennial. That's correct. It's one of those enduring, and obviously, you know, the health and safety of our military service members and their families is a priority for the Department of Defense. And this report is a great read. I wish we could go through every page in it, but I wanted to ask you about financial management which, I don't know, it seems impervious to solving, because I've been watching it at least 25 years, the different attempts to modernize financial management, financial systems. What's going on there? So uh, the DODOIG uh, recently issued the financial statement audit for 2020. We've sustained our unmodified opinions for seven organizations and believe that we're going to have one additional one. Over the last year, DOD has resolved 530 findings from the FY19 audits and are working hard uh, as it relates to all of those findings and streamlining and standardizing processes to maintain asset visibility, fund balance with Treasury, and looking for fraud. So progress, but still some ways to go. That's correct. The Department of Defense you know, has hundreds of financial systems that deal with financial management. And as the department is looking to consolidate and collapse as part of their reform efforts, uh, I think we'll see continued improvement in financial management in the Department of Defense. And a final question. Pretty soon there's going to be a new Secretary of Defense, and there's been sort of a parade of them, I guess, in the last few years. But Presuming someone will walk in, you know, for the new administration, do you ever secretly say to yourself, here's what you really need to look at first? What would that be? Well, I think uh, our document lays out what are the significant challenges to the Department of Defense, regardless of who's in the secretary's position. We have a good national defense strategy that lays out our strategic goals. Those three then drive all those subordinate plans and operations And so I I think if I were to sit down and talk with that person, I would say, please take a look at these. I think some of them we have well in hand and have good strategies to take care of. I think in other areas, there are opportunities. Leo Fitzharris is the Assistant DOD Inspector General for Strategic Planning and Performance. 
He spoke with Tom Temin. Earlier in the hour, we talked with two of the leaders of the Reliability Control Board Data Analytics Team at the Naval Air Warfare Center Aircraft Division about how the Navy is using data analytics to help rebuild readiness in its aviation fleets. If you missed that conversation, we'll post this week's full show, as always, at federalnewsnetwork.com slash ondod. You can also hear us in podcast form. Subscribe to On DoD on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's it for this week's show. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbin. So long. You've been listening to On DoD on Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. Kristen here, reminding you not to do things. What I mean is, with same-day delivery for everything from gifts to groceries, you only have to do the things you want to do. To not do the other things, visit Shipt.com. That's S-H-I-P-T dot Finding the perfect suit can seem impossible, but finding one that's perfect for you is easy with Indochino. Choose your design and custom details. Then submit your measurements online or get measured in-store for a custom, made-for-you fit at an incredible price. And shop their new fall collection for seasonal styles. Find your perfect suit with Indochino. Get $50 off any purchase of $399 or more with promo code FALLUPDATE at Indochino.com. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com. Promo code FALLUPDATE.